You are listening to the Impact Lenders Podcast, the podcast for people and institutions using lending for good. Welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to Episode 7 of the Impact Lenders Podcast. This is your host, Peter Schaefing. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We'll be discussing different topics in underwriting that impact lenders face. So we have a few things to cover today. We're going to cover a pretty wide range, and we hope to give everyone something they can take away and use in their own work. Now, we're not going to go too in-depth into anything, but I do encourage you to reach out to me directly at analysis at highimpactanalysis.com or through our website, www.impactlenderspodcast.com, if you'd like to discuss any topics further. At High Impact, we do a lot of underwriting. It's our day-to-day work. Uh, we nerd out on it a bit, so we would love to talk to you more about it and, and address any follow-up questions that you might have from today's podcast. I'll also note that if you were a follower of impactlenderspodcast.com, you might have been expecting to hear Johan Matthews of Community Loan Fund of the Capital Region discuss impact investing today. Uh, that podcast is yet to come, so don't worry, that'll be up soon, but today we're going to stick with underwriting. All right, so let's jump in. The first topic of the day is leasehold mortgages. So CDFIs end up financing a lot of leasehold mortgages because it's an area of finance that banks are less interested in financing because there's a little additional risk with a leasehold mortgage. It's not as clean a financing as a mortgage on a fee interest. Um, So the distinction here, of course, is that uh, in this case, your collateral is a mortgage on the tenant's interest in the property rather than the owner's interest in the property. There's a few issues that come up in these types of financings that I want to address today. And the first is the value of a leasehold mortgage. I've seen more than one deal, and including in recent months even, get killed by uh, an LTV on a leasehold mortgage that comes back lower than anticipated or too low to finance. To help you avoid that, I want to make sure that we're clear on where the value of a leasehold mortgage comes from. The value is derived from the difference in the contracted lease rates with the market rents. So the value really depends on a borrower obtaining a long-term lease that has advantageous rents. So for instance, uh, a common one that we see is in the affordable housing space. If a housing authority is leasing land that a developer will build a property, an affordable property on, they'll also often provide a 50-year or a 99-year lease at a dollar a year or some other nominal rent. So there's real value in that leasehold uh, interest in the land given the low lease rate and the long lease term. In fact, the leasehold interest in this case is almost the same as the ownership interest. So the value there is is going to be very close, if not the same, as the fee interest in the property. Um, So alternatively, we often see in the charter school space, leasehold mortgages that end up at very high LTVs because the rents aren't nearly as advantageous or nearly as long. Um, So it's very difficult and likely impossible to sell, you know, to foreclose upon and sell the leasehold interest if there's not a significant differential between the lease rates and the market lease rates, um, or if the term is too short. For example, if you have a three-year lease, even if the if the lease rates are significantly below market, you know, hopefully that loan's going to perform for a year or two. By the third year, if there's a workout situation, you've only got a year left, and there's just not enough value there to sell. Now, in the charter school space in particular. An alternative way to kind of monetize this type of interest is simply to replace the tenant. So if you replace the tenant, 
then you can replace your source of revenue or your source of cash flows that are going to repay your debt ultimately without having to foreclose on the mortgage and sell the mortgage. Um, so that's kind of a way that lenders at times get comfortable with a high LTV. If they're in a market where they're confident they can replace a tenant, say in New York City or a DC where a charter school space is at a premium, then you can get some value even if the lease rates aren't significantly below market. So a final note that I want to make on leasehold mortgages is the importance of understanding the terms of the lease and the SNDA or the subordination and non-disturbance and a torment agreement um, and the bearing of those documents on your mortgage. So the SNDA is the document that establishes the relationship between the leasehold mortgagee, the tenant, the landlord, and the landlord's mortgagee, the fee mortgagee. So certainly these are documents you should run by your real estate lending attorney if you are not familiar with the importance of these items to leasehold mortgage lending. But a few things that are very basic that you need to see are to ensure that the lease lets the tenant encumber the interest in the property, basically allows you to take a leasehold mortgage and you very likely will have to provide notice to the landlord. And then the SNDA, you need to make sure that after foreclosure, any new tenant will have the right to the property without disturbance from the fee mortgagee. Again, you have no value in the mortgage in the leasehold mortgage if the fee mortgagee doesn't have to respect the rights of a new tenant. All right, so that's enough on leasehold mortgages for the day. Let's move on to the second topic. So now we'll discuss how we underwrite an organization's financials when they have affiliates or subsidiaries to the organization. For example, very common example, affordable housing developers will often create a new real estate entity for each development. Whatever the case is, you have to determine what financials should you be looking for uh, when underwriting a deal. This is an issue that I've seen come up for different lenders have questions about this and certainly members of credit committees wonder why we're looking at one entity rather than another. So the basic rule of thumb, I would say, is to really make sure you're crystal clear on what legal entity you have recourse to. So that's either through the note as the borrower or through a guarantee agreement. So if your borrower is a legal entity that is the parent of a family of companies, you don't necessarily want to focus on the consolidated organization's financials because in a workout scenario, you do not have recourse to an affiliate's assets, only to your borrower's assets. So what we most typically do in an underwrite is look at the consolidated organization uh, because certainly if they have affiliates that are dragging them down, you know, the parent can have a, a good amount of cash relative to their expenses and their current liabilities. But if the affiliates have substantial liquidity shortages, you know the parent's going to end up subsidizing those affiliates and you'll lose the cash at the parent entity. So it is important to understand the overall dynamics of the organization, but certainly the meat of the analysis is going to be on that parent entity, the legal entity to which you have recourse. And when evaluating those, typically we have the benefit of an audit that has consolidating schedules that will provide you the parent's financials. In the case when that doesn't happen, often we have to rely on interims, which of course tend to be less reliable, tend to generate a lot of questions. But something that comes up very commonly when looking at a parent is you end up having a lot of intercompany accounts. Again, with a real estate developer, very often a parent is going to be providing loans or sometimes not a formal loan, but just a due to affiliate, due from affiliate, where they've advanced funds, say, to fund pre-development. When evaluating the quality of those assets, you really have to consider uh, how, how many projects they're exposed to and at what levels. So say we have... $10 million of notes receivable from affiliates. If $8 million is to one entity 
and the rest is split between a few. I'm going to dig into that one entity that has the $8 million payable to our borrower and really understand how likely it is that that asset will be realized, you know, will be recouped by the parent entity and on what time frame. For some organizations, this creates a big swing where they look like they have, you know, a lot of assets relative to their net assets. But if in fact, a large majority of those are in 30 or 40 year notes that are cash flow dependent from their affiliates, balance sheet is actually much less strong than it appears at first glance. So that's an issue I'd encourage you to watch out for. So now I'll transition that into another aspect of evaluating a, an organization's financial capacity, and that is pension plans. Whenever we have an audit, one of the notes I'm always looking for is information on the organization's retirement benefits. Um, in most cases, you'll find it. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes there's no retirement plan at all. But in the case of pensions especially, I really want to understand what the obligations of the borrower are. There's a few types of retirement plans I'll touch on briefly. The most problematic as an underwriter is a defined benefit plan. That's guaranteeing employees a certain benefit based on their compensation and their years of service. This is the type of pension plan that has bankrupted cities in the U.S. Um, the problem with it is you are very dependent on how long people live and how long actuaries expect people to live because that dictates the amount of money that an actuary is going to determine that you need to have in that pension plan. If you don't have enough, then you have an unfunded pension liability, which shows up as a liability on the balance sheet and can really weigh you down. The amount of the unfunded pension liability is also prone to swing based on the value of the assets in the pension plan, which are usually marketable securities. So in a year when the stock market is down, that number is going to balloon. And when a year when the stock market is up, it's going to shrink somewhat, uh, all, all other things being equal though it is still you know, likely to be something that an underwriter is going to want to look at and really understand. And these things can be very difficult to understand because they are based on actuarial assumptions that usually are detailed in the audit. But even with those details, you know, it's hard to parse through and really understand what the, uh, the ultimate liability here is. Now, that's a pension plan that has really gone out of style because of the problems it creates. I do know of at least one large affordable housing developer that's still uh, is feeling the effects of this on their on their balance sheet, even though they no longer let new employees into it. Um, but an alternative is a defined contribution plan. So when you see that language, you know the employer is defining how much money they will put into the plan rather than how much of a benefit the beneficiary will receive. In that scenario, ideally, the employer is going to have the right to change their, their contribution on a year-to-year -year basis or on a couple-year contract so that they can respond to economic issues uh, in a responsible way. Um, this is the type of thing that you see in a 401k when a company is going to allow you to contribute to your 401k max if you so choose, and they'll match up to 2% or 3% or 5%. Now, an additional measure of comfort for the underwriter is if the, that contribution is a voluntary contribution. So that would allow the employer to actually not provide a contribution in a down year if necessary. Um, now, that's something from a social justice perspective as a B Corp, you know, at high impact, that's not something that we love to see. Um, but from an underwriting standpoint, certainly it provides the, the borrower with maximum flexibility to respond to economic circumstances. And it really, really ensures that the pension plan or the retirement plan is not going to be a drain on their financial performance. I do want to address one kind of special scenario that's come up in the last couple of years with pensions. And that is in the governmental sector, which includes charter schools in most states, 
GASB, the Government Accounting Standards Board, issued a statement, uh, statement number 68, that went into effect in 2015. Now, this drastically changed how public entities like charter schools report on pensions when they are participating in state pension plans. So now, under that statement, charter schools that, are, that report financials under GASB have to show their pro rata share of any unfunded portion of the state's pension plan on their balance sheet as a liability. And this really wreaks havoc on charter financials and makes them much more difficult to to really meaningfully interpret because you know the the charter school has specific contributions it has to make to the pension plan but it is not responsible for unfunded liabilities in most states so new jersey where i was on the board of a charter school is a great example of this charter schools have to contribute a certain percentage of salaries to the pension plan but they are not responsible for additional contributions to meet the unfunded liability. And yet that unfunded liability shows up on their balance sheet. It, it swung a lot of schools from a positive fund balance to a negative fund balance. And that, that spooked funders for about a year, you know, and people started figuring, figuring out that it was not a material change. But when you see that, you know, it leads to a lot of confusions. I saw auditors that were confused by it. We, we saw balance sheets that were out of balance because of it. So it's something that you really just need to speak to the school business administrator, perhaps speak to the auditor if necessary, so that you get clarity and that you understand what their pension contribution is based off of. And it's also important to understand if that's tied to state policy that might change from year to year. And in many states it is. Um, So that is a risk that you assume, but certainly getting comfortable with the current way that they have to do it and the historical way they've done it uh, should give you some measure of comfort there. The last thing we'll talk about is underwriting low-income housing tax credit transactions. So this might seem a little niche, but a lot of real estate lenders are getting into this in the CDFI world, and many, of course, have been in it for many, many years already. But this is definitely a space that the CDFI sector can serve well, because while bank lenders serve the construction phase and the permanent phase very effectively, CDFIs often are left to serve the pre-development and acquisition needs of LIHTC developers. So it's important for lenders who play in that space to understand some keys about the sector. Now, if you lend in one state and you're starting to get into this, you really should become very familiar with your state's qualified allocation plan. That's going to help you understand how states underwrite, how states award credits, um, and will really help you understand what's a competitive deal, what's going to get awarded credits, and what is not. I'm just going to highlight a few things here today. Again, if you'd like to discuss this further, please do contact me at analysis at highimpactanalysis.com or reach out via impactlenderspodcast.com. But a few things that are kind of high notes that you should make sure to look into whenever financing a LIHTC project. One is going to be looking at looking at and understanding the letter of intent from the tax credit syndicator and or the limited partnership agreement if it's that far along. But most often you're not going to have that because you're in the pre-development or acquisition phase. The LOI, that that provides a wealth of information about how the tax credit syndicator is looking at this deal. Um, The biggest information that everyone wants to see is the pricing on the tax credit equity. That, of course, has fluctuated tremendously since the election of our current president. The speculation around tax reform and then the tax reform, reform occurring itself really caused an upset in the market that is only now in the last six to 12 months has been uh, settling down a bit. Um, and we have not seen prices return to their pre-tax reform levels, but they've they've come up from the lows that we saw, you know, in the middle or so of 2017 when there was a lot of speculation about what tax reform would bring, but no real certainty behind that. 
with any light tech pricing, especially on if you're in that pre-development or acquisition phase, you want to understand what is the fallback if that pricing goes down by the time it's locked in. And that leads to my next point about deferred developer fees. So this is kind of a squishy source of funds that is often viewed in, in part as a contingency because if you have developer fee that's not deferred, perhaps you can defer more of it in order to make room if there is, say, a decrease in the tax credit equity rate. But deferred developer fee can only go so far because in order for it to count towards eligible basis in a tax credit transaction, it has to be paid out during the tax credit compliance period. And in many qualified allocation plans and tax credit syndicator requirements, the underwriting has to show up being repaid even quicker than that so that there's no question of recapture. So you can't just defer all of your developer fee to absorb additional costs or lower tax credit pricing. You really have to be able to demonstrate that deferred developer fee can be repaid on a reasonable timeline. As a final note, I'll give a shout out to a great resource online, uh, which is Novogratik's website. They have a tremendous wealth of resources around LIHTC, including rent and income limits, which is really the quickest way to find the HUD maximum rents that can be charged in a LIHTC transaction. So that's something that's definitely an, a great resource to access for free on Novogratik's website, novoco.com. Quick shout out also to Tax Credit Tuesday, the podcast of no Novogratik, which I always tune into every Tuesday to, to hear what's going on in the space. So that's a great resource to keep in mind as well. So that will wrap up our show today. I hope you learned a thing or two that might help in your own underwriting. I know one of the great things about working with as many lenders as we do is that I'm learning from different underwriters and different organizations every single day. So there's always something more to learn. Um, and if you'd like to get deeper on any topics, please do reach out. I'd also like to encourage you to go onto our website, www.impactlenderspodcast.com to submit any ideas you may have for topics of shows, or if you'd like to be on a show or you know someone who should be on the show, please do get in touch. We're always interested in hearing more. Thanks again for listening, and we hope we'll have you back next time. This podcast is brought to you by High Impact Financial Analysis. We help mission-focused lenders build and maintain high-performing impact portfolios through our underwriting, portfolio analysis, and general consulting services. Find out more at www.highimpactanalysis.com and follow us on Twitter at High Impact FA. The views and opinions expressed on the Impact Lenders podcast are the speaker's own and do not necessarily represent the views of High Impact or other organizations. Until next time, thanks for listening.